District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Welcome to District of Conservation. I am your host, Gabriella Hoffman, and today we are joined by a very special guest. But I hope you all had a great 4th of July Independence Day celebration. I did it. Mine was pretty low-key. I got to do some hiking. I checked out some new places in Manassas. I got to see City of Manassas and... I went to this really cool place called the Black Sheep Restaurant, which I highly recommend if you are here in Northern Virginia. But anyway, we are joined by Trent Marsh, a longtime friend of mine, a guy who knows a lot about the outdoors. And Trent has been in marketing in the shooting sports for over a decade as a marketing manager, writer, social media professional, and consultant. He has worked with numerous brands in the industry across several brand categories, including optics, UTVs, and trail cameras. He currently operates his own marketing company, TagSoup LLC, and serves as the editorial manager for SpyPoint Trail Cameras, as well as continuing to write for such titles as Deer and Deer Hunting Magazine, Whitetails Unlimited, Clay Target Nation, Outdoor Hub, and his own recently revived blog, TagSoup Adventures. He's also the co-host of the Will to Hunt podcast. We talk about his background, some interesting stories, one especially relating to Arizona and trail cams that has been really, really contentious of late, and some other current event stories interspersed with some politics. So here is my interview with Trent Marsh. Check it out and let me know what you think. I'm thrilled to be joined by my longtime friend, Trent Marsh, here on the podcast. Trent, it is so great to speak with you, and I'm sorry we weren't able to talk more at POMA, but we did get to interface a little bit, but I think the podcast is a good way to, to make up for that time. For sure. You know, there's never enough time. So it's always great to catch up. What did you like most about this past conference? I think there was some really good excitement in the air. Like I've only been to another one before I joined the board, but it was really exciting. We had a lot of young energy, just this vitality. And maybe it was because people were just sick of staying at home and being cooped up due to COVID stuff. But I think it was really a good showing. And I think there's a lot of excitement for the organization going forward. What do you think? Yeah, I think everybody had a little bit more youthful excitement after 18 months of, you know, really it was shot show 2020 that we last were able to to Mm -hmm. see each other uh, as a, from an industry standpoint. So there's just a lot of people that when you only see them one or two times through the course of the year, anyway, at, at either ATA or shot show or, or POMA or glow or organizations like that, you know, the, we weren't able to have those things and we didn't have those trade shows this year. So this was really kind of the first one where we could all get back together and and see each other. So I think everybody was kind of excited to, to be able to actually interface as three-dimensional human beings again. That was nice. Yeah. Although in our industry, we pride ourselves in doing the original social distancing. So it wasn't really hard for us, I would say to do that, but like, I think depriving people of human interaction, it's, going to prove very costly, I think, going forward. And thankfully, I think all of us can speak to this. If it wasn't for fishing and hunting, especially fishing this past year, I think a lot of us would have gone nuts. I can personally say that myself, but I was still able to have camaraderie. I was still able to go with friends and family. I took a fishing trip with my dad to Pennsylvania at the height of like when you were not supposed to travel to Pennsylvania, but we did it (laughs) safely and we caught a lot of steelhead trout. So 
I think um, we're going to hopefully see a return to this unless they shut us down. I think they're trying to hype everything again, unfortunately, and force us into more closures and lockdowns. So I hope that doesn't happen. And I hope we continue to be able to go to more conferences, hopefully SHOT Show 2022. That's something I'm hoping to do as well. Yeah, I I think at this point, the uh, the proverbial cat is kind of out of the bag. I think you'll the the pearl clutching will still happen in the the enclaves where that is is what they're prone to do uh but i think you get in a, in a lot of the rest of the country and whether they want it to be over or not it is people have moved on um it's it's just not i think they're going to have a really tough time getting the fear level back to where it was for those folks that aren't prone to living in fear indeed and we've known each other for a good number of years. We actually met through politics. I think, was it one of those blogger conferences early in my career? I think it was like 2012, 2013. We have some mutual friends in Katie Pavlich and some others, Jen Jakes, and a handful of others. And then we've we've been able to cross over a bit in the outdoor industry, especially with some positions you've had recently. So talk about what you do exactly for my listeners. Yeah, I really think we, I mean, we first connected on social media and just yes. as you've come into the the industry a little bit more, you know, I've, I've worked in the the shooting sports industry now for, uh, goodness, it's, it's a little more than a decade, uh, at this point. So, uh, I've worked on the, the marketing side of the industry for, for quite a while in several different types of companies, several different product categories, um, done it as a, as a marketing manager, as a, as a writer, as a consultant, uh, and, and kind of wear all those hats, uh, right now, um, still, still do some magazine writing, do some stuff, uh, contractually with, with some companies and, and, uh, just, yeah, been in, been in and around the industry for a while. And of course, I mean, I've, I've been a, a hunter and an angler pretty much my entire life. So it's, it's a, it's a natural thing for me. And it's, it's something that I enjoy doing. And I've, I'm lucky enough to have been able to turn that into, you know, what I do for a living. How would you say it compares to working in politics? Do you much prefer the outdoor industry? It has its caveats and it has its issues like anything, but do you prefer working more so in that than blogging and, and, and political blogging, for instance? Yeah. I mean, the, the, they're, they're both hobby industries. And I think you can make an argument that part of the problem with politics is that it's it's become a profession as opposed to a hobby for a lot of folks. Um, you know, and it's just always something that at least from my standpoint, I've, it's been more dabbling on the side uh, than anything. And it's it's something that, you know, honestly, I've had to disengage from a lot um, as as some time has gone on and and different things have happened. And it's anytime you have an industry like that, where, and, and I think it's fair to call politics and industry in a lot of ways. Um, there's always those, the people that just want to be around it, um, that, that, uh, can make it a little bit cumbersome and can make it a little bit, uh, more difficult to work in and around, but, you know, at, at least on the outdoor side, there's something tangible, you know, it's, you're not dealing strictly in an economy of ideas. Um, you know, you've got some tangible things that you can get into and talk about and, um, it, it, it's different, but it certainly compares, um, especially when you are part of an industry that so much of it is, is really tied, uh, to some of that political sphere. Um, you know, you can't get too far away from it. 
it's unavoidable. And I think we see a more creeping influence of politics. We see different divisions um, with respect to, you know, the type of styles of hunting, alliances forming, different things. And we don't have to go into that. But I've noticed that it's certainly become a lot more political in the last four years or five years, give or take. Uh, we see, let's say, those divisions about the types of hunting bleeding into kind of political elements, too, which is crazy. You think it would be unavoidable. And there are people who want to change kind of certain dynamics about hunting, um, fishing and shooting sports as well. And it is unavoidable. And, and we actually have to now defend ourselves against attacks on hunting and fishing um, because there are people who are adamant about trying to get rid of it. And sadly, I feel like those battles sometimes fall on political lines because it's kind of predictable. You now see people on the left, especially in state legislatures and somewhat federally, but more so state legislatures now where these battles are taking place. Um, members that lean to the left are now anti-hunting for the most part, unless you're in the South or uh, kind of in a Rust Belt state. But like in California and New York and New Mexico and all these other places where they're passing anti-hunting legislation, it's divided largely along political lines, which is crazy because hunting is supposed to be, for instance, fishing as well. It's supposed to be nonpartisan, but it's kind of discouraging to me to see that we see, you know, one political party at different state legislature levels passing this legislation, encouraging this. Is, is that something that concerns you, too? Obviously, the outside pressures are concerning, but but truthfully, for me, um, something that especially in in the last decade, and I don't think it's new. I just think it's been accelerated. Um, is more the pressure from within. I mean, you're you're always going to have those outside pressures um, from from folks that you know don't approve of what you're doing in the broad stroke uh, sense. But what what is becoming more and more frustrating for me is. Uh, the increasingly niche and the increasingly specific way that hunters and anglers talk about themselves in general. You're no longer just a hunter. You're a bow hunter, but you're not just a bow hunter. You're a traditional bow hunter and you're not a just a traditional bow hunter. You're a traditional whitetail bow hunter. And instead of, of talking about ourselves in those broad strokes, we go to the absolute most niche location that we can and identify strictly as that. Well, this is the type of hunter that I am. So I care about this type of hunting. And if you're a trapper, I don't care about you. And if you're a gun hunter, I don't care about you or whatever the case may be. It's, it's that internal strife. It's that internal division that we're, we're creating for ourselves that, uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, um, you know, I, I see that increasingly niche drive and it's, that's, you know, I, I expect to argue with, with people I disagree with. I don't expect to disagree with, with people who I would think are like-minded. And I think there's a, I think there's a political corollary there or where I think we're seeing that in a lot of instances within the parties as well. You're no longer, and you know, what the, whether the two party system is a good one or not is, is a whole other podcast, but you're no longer just a, a Republican or a Democrat. You, you've got these, these niches and these fragments and these splinter cells within where you're, you're not able to see the larger mechanism in play, um, and, and the larger, um, device that you're part of and figure out how to, how to align with some of those bigger umbrellas, because you're, you're just so far down on that niche banner that you like to wear. And if it doesn't fit into that really small, narrow ideology, then you at best don't care about it. And 
you know, at worst, you actively root against something that's still far more aligned with, with what and who you identify with than not. Yeah, we do see that bleed over into conservation politics, too. I try to stay above the fray because I do have some friends who disagree with me politically, and I don't want to upset them. Not that I'm worried about upsetting them, but I try to, unless I have to defend something or put a position out there that I think is principled, I usually won't entangle myself. I don't like picking fights on social media, (laughs) attacking people or different accounts, but I'm aware of different things privately behind the scenes. Um, But yeah, that's something to be... I guess, aware of and cognizant of going forward. And certainly those uh, divisions are not going to stop anytime soon. And it it seems like we're infighting ourselves more than let's say fighting the antis or fighting the PETA types or Sierra club types. Um, And and we already struggle, I think with a messaging problem, although we are improving Mm -hmm. with marketing and other efforts, but it's like, we don't, I think people fall into this and maybe it's because they just don't understand how to be diplomatic and they need some training in that respect on how to coalition build and work with people rather than hate your fellow hunter or angler. Um, so I think some people do need some coaching, uh, with respect to that. And they can learn from that, from, from people who've worked in politics. I think those of us who've had crossover into politics can help teach people like, Hey, this is where you're falling short and here are some shortcomings and here's how you can improve yourself. Um, but yeah, I, I hate seeing the divisions because we should be united as a front, as an industry. Um, but yeah, certainly people kind of want to take away from any unity sometimes um, to detract. You, we'll find this with uh, you know, people who prefer not to shoot with AR-15s uh, for hunting mm-hmm. or shooting sports will find this with people who oppose certain big game hunting measures, um, opposition to trapping. And I think actually one issue that I've spoken about is the uh, closure of land in Alaska, where there were a lot of certain conservation groups, so to speak, who were not saying anything until they were pressured. Um, so they were portraying themselves as obviously were absolutist when it comes to public land access, but they were largely silent until people called them out with the Mm -hmm. proposed closures in Alaska. So it seems like people are very selective about public lands access or defending certain aspects. So a lot to, (laughs) a lot to do, but I also want to talk more broadly about what you currently do. So you do a lot in the trail cam space. Could you speak to that too? Uh, Yeah. um, You know, I'm, I, I currently, I work with spy point trail cameras. I'm our, our editorial manager over there. So handle a lot on the content side. Uh, you know, we've, we've got a pretty robust, um, content arm at spy point. Uh, we've got what we call project spy point. We've got three different video series. We've got a podcast as well, the spy point podcast, and then, uh, written blogs also that, you know, they're not necessarily, um, trail camera focused, but it's, it's lifestyle content. It might be fishing. It might be camping. It might be hunting. Um, but we're covering it all. One of our video series is actually, it's a, it's a cooking series, you know, it doesn't, doesn't really have anything directly to do with trail cameras. Um, but we all eat, right? So um, we've got the cooking series as well, and and all those other elements. So that's that's a big portion of my time right now is is working on the trail camera side uh, in the marketing realm of Spy Point. And for those who don't really use trail cams, and admittedly, I have one. I was once gifted one, and I think I didn't know how to properly install it. So I it only took photos of myself and not the wildlife in my backyard. So you may have to give me some pointers. But for those who are starting to incorporate trail cams into their hunting repertoire, what are some, I guess, foolproof tips or what are some basics that people should know uh, when installing them or, or how can they be effective when using them? 
just like any other piece of technology, whether, whether you're using a cellular trail camera or a, or a standard non-cellular trail camera, um, the first thing I always recommend is, you know, test it out and make sure that it's working right before you take it to the woods. It's, it's a lot easier to troubleshoot if there's something going on, you know, from your living room next to your computer, than you know, if you're out in the woods and, and trying to make it work from there, that's kind of the first thing is just familiarize yourself with the product, make sure you understand how it's working before it goes into the field. Um, but then once it's there, um, it's, it's really important that you understand how these devices work in that there is a, a motion detection sensor that is going to set off the, the camera feature. Um, so if you kind of envision how that camera is looking, you don't ever really want your camera to be set up at a 90 degree angle to where you expect the game to come from, uh, because there is going to be a lag from the time that 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 motion sensor is activated to the time that the camera wakes up and is able to take a picture, uh, that's called your trigger speed. So the faster the trigger speed, the quicker that camera goes from sleep mode to activated to taking a photo. Um, spy point, we've got uh, cameras with seven one hundredths of a second trigger speed, which is the fastest on the market. Um, but there, there are models uh, in the industry that go up to almost a second. So if you think about how far you can walk in a second, you know, and, and then you, you look at, you know, like a 40 degree motion cone, you know, it would be easy, especially if you're walking close to the camera to trigger the camera, continue to walk and be gone before it's even able to take a picture. So we always recommend setting up on an angle to where you expect game to come or go from just so it's got a longer time in that detection window, more opportunities for more photos, especially when you, you know, when you're trying to keep an eye on, on bucks and hunting seasons coming and you kind of want to know what you've got on the property to, to be hunting. You want as many pictures of those bucks as possible. So you can get a really good idea of, of what you're hunting, you know, and that's not going to happen with just you know, one photo, you, you want to make sure you're setting up in a way that you're able to get two and three and four photos of those deer every, every time you have a chance. Uh, so that's the first thing. Um, and then the other thing is, is when it's avoidable, um, try to avoid pointing east or west directly into a setting or rising sun. Um, you know, we, we all have phones with cameras in them now and, and backlit subjects make for really poor photos. So you could, you could take a picture, but if it's, if you've got lens flare and you can't really see what's going on, it's not going to be any good to have that photo taken because you're not going to be able to see it. So, um, those are, those are two two big things is, is making sure that you do that. And then just in the interest of conserving photos, uh, try to clear out the area in front of the camera as much as possible. They are motion detected. So you've got low hanging branches or you got a, you know, a, a sapling or something in front of it. That's really going to be affected by the breeze. You know, this time of year, ag crops are starting to get higher and, and the wind can move corn and beans and those kind of things around enough that, um, you, you can have, uh, false triggers taken that way as well. But as much as you can cleaning out the area in front of the camera so that you're not getting a bunch of false triggers so that more of your photos are actually of what you're trying to get pictures of, uh, those things will all help quite a bit to, uh, to not only get better photos, but, but to get more photos that matter. That's good advice. And how would you rank the company's products, let's say compared to competitors, what do you see as uh, some of the good qualities that outshine some competitors? Why should people potentially invest in, in your company's trail cams? 
spy points, um, been a leader on the cell camera side for a long time. Um, you know, we, we didn't make the first one, but there, there, there weren't many that, that did it before us. And spy points really been, uh, focused on making sure that cellular camera technology is affordable for anybody that wants to use it. You know, when, when cell cams first came out and, and still there are, are cell cams that are hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Um, and, and spy point has always been about getting that price point, uh, to, to a point that, that any hunter that wants to, to use them can, you know, the link Evo was the first cellular trail camera that was available for less than $300. And then the link micro was the first cellular trail camera that was available under $200. Um, so when you, when you look around at even the non-cellular camera options that are out there, those are, those are affordable units. And then when you consider the fact that they're, they're cell cameras as well. It's, it's just that much, much more impressive. And then the, the actual user experience is, is kind of the other thing that we've, we've always tried to make it very streamlined. Um, you know, cellular trail cameras are going to have additional fees that go along with them for the photo transmission packages and things of that nature. And that's, again, it's, it's something that we've worked to make affordable for, any hunter that wants to use that technology. And then again, you, you juxtapose that with some features like the uh, fastest trigger, uh, fastest trigger speed available that we talked about. And then we've got our solar tech technology, which is a, it's an integrated solar panel that's feeding either an onboard lithium battery or a lithium battery pack. So, um, you know, the new link S dark that came out this year, it's, it's got that integrated solar panel that's feeding an onboard lithium battery. So, um, when you talk about hunting and you talk about wanting to scout, but not actually be in there and not be spooking game and and not educating the deer or whatever it is that you're hunting, that you're, you're there to hunt them. When you're able to eliminate visiting the camera to pull the SD card, because you're getting those photos sent out to you on the spy point app, there's, there's one touch point with the camera that you've eliminated. Now, because you've got that solar technology, you're not even having to go in there to change batteries every six, eight, 12 weeks. You know, you're, you're talking about months of runtime with that solar panel and the, the, um, onboard lithium battery. So now you've, you've literally eliminated the two reasons that you would need to go in there. Um, I'm, I'm getting ready to do my final set before the season. Our season in Indiana doesn't open up until October, but I'm going to hang, you know, a handful of solar cameras, they'll go out the first part of July and those cameras will be running until I take them down to service ahead of Turkey season next March. I will not have to visit those cameras uh, to service batteries or pull SD cards. That's a a huge advantage um, to, to those, you know, when you're in the woods, anytime you're there, you're educating the deer that you're there. And if, if you're wanting to have a successful season, as much as you can stay off that property and let them do what it is that they want to do without your interference, the, the more likely you are to have luck. So, um, those, those type of product innovations have been, have been huge and have been a big part of spy points popularity. Very cool. And let's move over to current events, but we'll start with something relating to trail cams. I have heard this issue. Katie Pavlich actually was like, could you explore more about this? And I don't know much about trail cams. So for me, it was like, I don't know. Um, but you kind of focused on, on the first story that we're going to talk a little bit about this whole issue of Arizona's fishing game. And I think, what was it? They unanimously ruled that you can't use trail camps. Could you explain exactly what's going on with that issue? Your thoughts on it? Um, if it impedes 
your ability to hunt, if it will lead to a depletion of, let's say, big game or certain species. So what is going on with that? Can you deconstruct for my listeners what is going on in Arizona? And and it's I've I've given it some cursory information. I'm I'm not a, I'm gonna put the the caveat in there that I'm not an expert on the legislation or well it's not really legislation but the the uh, the rules change in Arizona. But uh, yes, as as I understand it and as I reviewed it, it is it is a complete elimination of the ability of hunters to use trail cameras in the state of Arizona. Um, and I, frankly, on its face, it's baffling to me. Um, there's, I don't, I don't think there's anyone that can point to an appreciable difference, uh, in any sort of an advantage that comes from using trail cameras. There are, there are plenty of people is that, you know, they, they fill their hunting tags without using trail cameras. And there are plenty of people that use trail cameras that, uh, you know, eat tag soup. So there's, there's not that direct corollary, uh, the game camera in and of itself, you know, especially the cellular trail cameras, which is kind of where the, the legislation began was, was attacking the cellular trail camera. Um, you know, if anything, it, it, is a benefit to wildlife because you're not actually having to go out there to view those cards and, and you are your footprint in, in the wild is actually able to be decreased. Um, you know, it's, it's especially odd in a state like Arizona where you've got so many non-resident hunters that are coming out there. Um, that's a huge portion, uh, of, of a, a hunter's ability to, you know, to get an out of state tag, to go do some scouting, hang some cameras, get an idea of what's in the area. Um, you know, whether, whether or not certain people want to hear it, um, the fact remains that the single greatest mechanism for, uh, conservation and for a, a healthy, uh, ecosystem and healthy wildlife is hunting. Um, the the hunters are the foremost experts on what those animals are doing and how those animals are using uh, the ecosystem and using the environment. Um, and and hunters have saved far more, especially modern hunters have saved far more species than they've ever endangered. Um, because at the end of the day, you can't hunt what's not there. Um, hunters are always going to to not poachers, hunters are always going to promote, um, healthy, healthy animal herds, because it's only a healthy animal herd that you can sustainably hunt. So the, the idea of making it harder for your biggest conservation force to be in the field and have success and be recruited into it, um, again, just on its face is absolutely baffling to me. Um, I've, I've seen where it was, it was a two to one, uh, public opinion against it. You know, that's, it's, this wasn't something where the people of the state were clamoring to get trail cameras banned and, and the, the commission, you know, was answering to their constituents. It's, it's quite the opposite. The constituents told them what they wanted. And, um, all too often as we see the bureaucracy said, you know, we're going to do what we want to do. And, and they've imposed this, this uh, new ruling on their hunters. And it's I know I've said it three times and not to sound like a broken record, but it just, it's, it is completely bereft of anything that approaches logic or reason. Uh, and I just cannot wrap my mind around what they I've seen, what their justifications are and, and they're on their face ridiculous. So I, I, I cannot wrap my mind around it. 
What would be the implications that stem from this? Is it going to prevent people from wanting to go hunting? Is it a, let's say in inter, uh, is it a uh, encroachment of like private property rights? What, what is it exactly? What implications can stem from it? You think from this decision? (laughs) Just on its face, you're going to have hunters that are frustrated because, you know, hunting seasons are short. And then by the time you factor in, um, you know, other, other life, other life things that come up, you know, Indiana, for example, my hunting season runs from October 1st until basically the first weekend in January. So I've got about three months roughly to be able to hunt, but I don't get to just be a hunter for three months. I still have work and family and everything else going on. So if I'm able to hunt 10, 15, 20 days, that's a good season. So through the course of the year as a hunter, you know, running trail cameras and and getting an idea of what's on the property and, and not only that, but, you know, making good decisions about how to hunt that property later that year, you know, um, doing your herd surveys and getting an idea of, you know, it's, we're not just hunting bucks, you know, yeah, we'll all given the opportunity, we'll all take a big buck, but a lot of what I'm doing in my trail camera study through the course of the year is, do we have too many does? Do we have not enough does? You know, is there, are there too many young bucks? You know, what, what really getting an idea of those herd dynamics so that then when hunting season comes, because that is our management window, we can't, we can't just go out in July and say, there's too many does on this property and go out and start taking does out in the middle of July. We have hunting season to do that. And, and the trail camera study, especially as more and more people are taking land and herd management on themselves um, and doing habitat improvements, whether it's food plots or, or mineral sites or whatever the case may be, a lot of the reason they're doing that is to improve overall herd health. And trail cameras are the number one tool by which to do that. So if you've got a spot in Arizona and you're going elk hunting or mule deer hunting and, and you're trying to figure out, you know, a, do I need to take a year off or should I not harvest an antlerless deer this year? Should I, should I let the, the herd recover? A lot of that comes from the work that you're doing with trail cameras to see what's in the air area and removing that tool from a hunter's arsenal to be able to know what they're dealing with on their property, especially when that's private property. Um, you know, it, while I still wouldn't agree, you could, at least there's that argument to be made that if it's, you know, public ground, that it's, it's a public resource and, you know, posting uh, private trail cameras to, to monitor public thing. Okay. I, I still think it's a, it's a very, uh, a very watery argument, but it, it's at least one that you can make. Uh, but to tell a rancher who happens to hunt that on his property, he can't use a trail camera to see what the herd health for of his elk or mule deer is. Um, it's, it's a slap in the face, um, to the people that are actually doing the legwork of managing these resources. And that's the hunter. It's, it's not this, it's not this commission. It's, it's the hunter. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know what we'll see come about this, but I know a lot of people have some very strong, strong opinions of this. So I'm appreciative of the clarification. Let's move to 
a second of third stories I want to talk to you about. And we were talking about this before recording. So San Jose's mayor, Sam Licardo, uh, announced that him and his city council passed the first ever gun liability insurance. And they think this is going to help curb violence perpetrated by criminals who use guns in their ghastly acts. And he says, we will require every gun owner in my city to have liability insurance, regardless of where they purchase their gun. And he also adds that insurance compensates the victims of unintentional gun harm, which annually injures 27,000 Americans and claims the lives of more than 500 to pay medical bills, rehabilitative needs, and tragically funeral expenses. He adds, insurance also incentivizes safe gun ownership where risk-adjusted premiums might encourage owners to take gun safety courses, use gun safes, or install child safe locks. In the context of auto safety, it's interesting. He loves to, everyone loves to compare this to auto safety. Insurers rewarding good driving or the use of airbags have reduced their fatalities by 80% in five decades, saving lives. We need a similar approach to address unintentional firearm risk because 4.6 million children live in a household where a gun is kept unlocked and loaded and three quarters of gun injuries occur at home. So you hear that. You hear about gun liability insurance. I've seen many of our friends in the firearms industry refute this and point out that this will make gun ownership increasingly difficult and inaccessible to people who can't afford it. And especially disproportionately will displace people of color, minorities who normally won't be able to afford guns under such policy. So when you hear this and and you hear about the implications, what are your thoughts that kind of run through your mind? It's, I mean, it's a tax. It's uh, by some other name. It is a tax on on gun ownership. Um, it's it's the common it's the common refrain as it comes to gun control that it is not doing anything to um, curb the implications of illegal gun ownership. This is only going to affect legal gun owners. And I my. I have not dug into the crime statistics for San Jose, but I am more than confident that it is not legal FFL purchased firearm gun owners who are the cause of the the harm that he wants to impose uh, on on that class. It's it's the criminals. It's the uh, it's the the folks that aren't going to go purchase insurance for their illegally purchased firearm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm in Indiana, so I get to constantly catch the blame from the esteemed mayor Lightfoot about how the Indiana guns are killing people in Chicago. Um, but it's, it's Chicago criminals that are killing people in Chicago and it is not legally owned firearms in San Jose that are causing trauma and, and, um, medical bills or anything else. It is the criminals of San Jose. And that won't change until those, those things that, again, we've, we've seen it here recently where, um, you know, we're not going to go after the straw purchasers. You know, that was, that was something that, um, the 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 shooting sports industry has been clamoring for the the oversight that already exists to be used 
and I might be misquoting it, and maybe you remember right off, but the it was something like 8% of straw purchasers during the Obama era when we were so concerned about you know, gun violence again, that only 8% of straw purchasers were ever, you know, the, those charges were ever undertaken. So mm-hmm. again, we're not going to use the mechanisms that already exist to target illegal gun owners. We aren't going to do any of that. We are going to make gun ownership so expensive that we price out as many people as possible. Um, and again, when you, if you look at the voting block that would be affected by that, you know, it's, it is a, a voting block that would historically lean more to the left and more to the Democrats. Um, so as long as they can keep that voting block uh, out of the realm of gun ownership, you know, that's, there's a lot of fear, I think, from, from the anti-gun lobby over the course of the last year and a half, as gun sales have soared. And so many of those people were first time gun owners. We shouldn't be a society of single issue voters, but that is a common single issue. Mm -hmm. Are you going to impede my right to exercise the second amendment. And if that is that for a lot of folks is a it's a simple pass fail test. If the answer is yes, then you will not get my vote. Um, not saying that's right or wrong, but that is a thought process that people have. And that is a, as, as Democrats look at the upcoming midterm and as Democrats look at holding onto the white house as 2024 approaches, they see a significant number of people who weren't gun owners for you know, five years ago, that are now gun owners. And the idea of any percentage of those people with the razor thin margins that we're working with um, in the electoral sense at this point, any of those people becoming single issue voters as it relates to the second amendment is horrifying for them. Um, Mm -hmm. Because too many people realized with COVID and with the riots that as much as they like to tell us that there is nobody else coming when it matters. In that moment, when it matters, your self-defense and your protection of your life and your family and your property is up to you. And the more people realize that, the less they are going to allow the government to tell them what they can and cannot do to protect themselves. And that is a horrifying thought for the people of that are running San Jose and the people that are running Chicago and the people that are running, you know, any of these blue states that want to impede that thought process of the second amendment and self-protection. Mm-hmm. And he also continues to say that we will require gun owners to pay a modest annual fee to compensate taxpayers for the cost of gun related violence. I'm actually curious if law enforcement there will speak out against this because I didn't see anything initially I could be mistaken, pointing to their endorsement of this. So I'm very curious to see what their police chief and their department says. I don't see this uh, being implemented. I see like within probably the next day or so, some gun organization, maybe like firearms policy or someone like that is going to file a suit to challenge this. So I think the courts will take this up and hopefully rule that this is unconstitutional because of what it'll do to price people out of gun ownership. And there's no 
I think measurable impact this will have on curbing crime. You're going to see criminals do this. And he says, skeptics will say that criminals won't comply. They're right yet. That's an important feature of these proposals, not a defect. So they're admitting this is not going to work and that they have confiscation in mind. Um, well, and it's just not crazy. Only the, they're looking to create criminals out of legal owners who yep. aren't wanting to comply with their BS stipulation that they just put on gun ownership. Mm-hmm. You know, it's no different than what we're seeing with the, 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 and it's some of the blame comes back onto, um, you know, what would be the pro gun Republicans for not getting clarification, uh, on, you know, the, the pistol brace, mm-hmm. uh, uh, language that this continues to be held over, you know, the numbers vary anywhere from four to 40 million of these devices are, are in the field, but that's, that's four to 40 million gun owners that are one, one stroke of a pen from becoming felons overnight because of the whims of a bureaucrat. And I don't, that's the intention. They want to, instead of actually addressing the real criminal behavior and criminal acts, they want to make us all criminals because it's easier to scapegoat and for them to continue that cycle of raising money, uh, to enact their controls, to enact policies that restrict and inhibit freedoms. So this is all a part of their plan. They're very transparent and anyone thinking otherwise really is not understanding who we're dealing with. But I think public opinion is shifting actually against gun control. So that's why I think there will be so much uh, negative backlash to this policy. And I think court challenges are going to be afoot. I think if the Supreme Court is going to finally hear some more gun cases, I think they have started to hear some in the pipeline, although they haven't ruled anything with this session that is starting to end but we, I think attitudes are changing. I think people realize that police are not going to be there to defend you, especially with many leaving the law enforcement agencies. You, you, I think regular Americans are realizing they're their best defense. And we always encourage people to definitely take training. You're not just buying a gun and then just keeping it. You need to train constantly. And I think that's what people fail to underscore. Like we do encourage safety. We encourage safe storage. That's what Project Child Safe with NSSF does. And they think that we're so reckless with all this stuff. But I think when people come to the range, they see things in action, they actually realize like, oh my gosh, this was just a false characterization. It was a lie that was put out by different people to scare and to fear monger. And so I think when people actually see firearms in action, they don't, they realize that they're not as scary as perceived. Maybe the characterizations are overinflated and misguided. And they learn that actually there is some, kind of appeal to doing this. It's not uh, amosexuality or something like that. Uh, there is a purpose to it. We're very serious about using firearms safely and everyone in the community writ large, those of us who do the reporting, the industry side, we take very seriously people who abuse gun crimes and we don't like criminals abusing gun crimes and endangering people as well. So I think despite this being pushed, one of the first in the nation, I think there will be corresponding backlash. That's my hope because so many people there, especially San Jose has become, I think, a lot more unsafe. There was that mass shooting there recently. Mm -hmm. So I don't think San Jose residents are going to stand idly by it, especially when Los Angeles County, a little bit far south, uh, you have the uh, sheriff there, Villanueva, who has green-lighted people. It, I mean, it shouldn't take uprisings and, and more violent crime to do this. You should be able to have access to permits, CCW permits, regardless of the circumstance. But even there, there he's relaxing the rules um, for gun ownership. So not everyone in California is agreeing with this, but I, I hope this is rejected. Um, but I definitely wanted to talk about that. And a third thing I wanted to talk about that we were 
largely talking about um, something that's kind of new, but that we, all of us in the sporting community should be aware of is the fact that animal rights activists want to end hunting and fishing in different states. And their template is starting in very blue states, unfortunately, like Oregon and California. They attempted to do this in California with banning black bear hunting. They did not succeed, thankfully, but they're finding loopholes through the instance of initiative petition 13, which would, and this is from Congressional Sportsman's Foundation, to end all hunting, fishing, and trapping in Oregon. They write that if passed, it would prohibit the injuring or killing of all mammals, fish, reptiles, and amphibians unless it occurs as a self act. Uh, act of self-defense. In addition to prohibiting hunting and fishing, the initiative would impact common animal breeding practices, research, and education. If it were to be certified, initiative proponents can begin gathering over 112,000 signatures to require a place on the 2022 ballot. And they write that if this were to pass under the American system of conservation funding and the unique user pays, public benefit structure, Oregon sportsmen and women generate 10,000 tens of thousands of millions of dollars each year for the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife through Pittman-Robertson funds. And it would restrict the over 940,000 sportsmen and women from their outdoor pursuits of hunting, fishing, and trapping. Prohibiting these activities would result in the substantial decrease of revenue for conservation, habitat restoration, and wildlife management efforts. And the group is called End Animal Cruelty based in Oregon, and they have been behind this as well. So when you hear about this, these types of initiatives to ban hunting, what comes to your mind when you hear this? And do you think something like this would succeed or will it require, let's say, outside influence from those of us not in Oregon to help draw awareness and also help people on the ground there to defeat this? And and I haven't had had the opportunity to to study it in a, in a lot of detail, but at least in this specific instance, I think what's going to make this um, easily defeatable even in Oregon is the the non-hunting implications that are going to be rolled into just how broad they made this uh this version um you know it's it's never that broad sweeping stuff that truly scares me i mean this just on its face is just stupidity run rampant and there's there's just no other word for it um anyone anyone that does the least little bit of, of research on it um, can see that that's, that's not the mechanism by which uh, wildlife thrives. Nowhere around the world where that's been implemented, implemented uh, is that what happens. Um, where sportsmen are allowed to be part of the conservation model, wildlife thrives. Um, that, that is why you're seeing more of the world adopt the North American model of, of conservation than not because it's the one that works. Um, but that's not going to, to stop the, 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 I'll say it, the crazies from, from their mission. Um, and like I said, in, in at least this instance, I think how broad they've tried to go with it will ultimately be its undoing. What what concerns me is when you see, you know, Florida had a bear a black bear hunt and ultimately that black bear hunt was shut down. We've seen that happen in New Jersey. We've seen small trapping um 
initiatives pass in certain places. It's it's the piecemeal. It is it is the extent to which they are content to eat the elephant one bite at a time that is the most troubling. Um, and it really goes back to that kind of the the fear of of the entire industry getting so niche is because too many people are content to say, well, I don't do that. You know, in this instance, it'll be well. Pfft, I don't, I'm not hunting in Oregon. I don't live in Oregon. That's not my problem. Yeah, it is. It, uh, well, I'm not a trapper. Trapping ban doesn't bother me. Yes, it does. Because every next thing is the, they're getting closer to whatever it is that you do. You know, it's, it's something that we, we've seen where to this point, fishing has really escaped a lot of the, the, stigma that hunting and especially trapping um have have had so again this is one of those situations where how broad-based they went with it i think will ultimately be its undoing because you always have more hunters than trappers and you always have more anglers than you do hunters so if you're gonna try to make make headway you typically see them start on trapping and then specific types of hunting and by and large fishing gets left alone because you know just you know with with the industry we talked about it with you know different people at poma when we were at conference you know the the return to the outdoors has been huge and it's been you know for for spy point you know we we saw a, a huge boost in people using trail cameras and getting into hunting but you talk to the people on the fishing side of the industry the number of people that were out buying fishing poles again and tackle and engaging in angling was just absolutely dwarfs uh the implication on hunting that by a, by itself was huge so to go that broad to include fishing um that's probably going to be the one that a lot of people go, come on, no, not, not going to go this route. Um, but every next one makes it a little bit more realistic and a little bit more terrifying to see the next version of it coming. You know, this is, I don't think they probably expect this to actually pass, but it, it's all, if it's, if it's nothing else, it's a trial balloon. They want to, it's, it's, they're sparring. They're going to throw a jab because they want to see how how we'll try to parry that jab, and and they will go back to the drawing board and they will refine their approach and they will put new messaging in place specifically to fight back against whatever those arguments are that come up in its face. I think this will be met with a lot of opposition for sure, and if we could have starved challenges in California. I think Oregon is possible, even with just the legislative hurdles, kind of the outnumbered um, things. And I think even representatives from the department will also, uh, who are largely non-political, because that agency, you have to be kind of a apolitical individual to work there. You do certainly carry out the actions of the administration that's in charge, but I think you'll see even opposition from people in the department in Oregon. So I'm hopeful and and I want to keep tabs on that too. But yeah, that's that's so crazy that we even have to contemplate this. Uh, even fishing uh, could potentially be under threat as well in Oregon. So we'll, I think we're, we have friends in Oregon and I think they're going to starve this off, but we have to help them kind of lend attention to the issue too. And I certainly will use whatever platform I can to do that as well. So those are, those are some interesting stories and I'm glad we were able to talk about that, but is there anything else on your mind? Um, let's say someone wants to start hunting, fishing, 
enjoys shooting sports, what recommendations would you have for them to do that? And also as a father of young kids, how important is it to keep these traditions alive and, and going into the next generation? Yeah. So obviously, especially the, 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 the biggest problem is, um, you know, I, I was raised in a family that it, in at least some ways hunted and fish, you know, even if it's not, you know, what I'm necessarily doing today, I was at least exposed to it. And that, that mentorship is always the toughest part of it. And it's easy when you come from a household that does it for, but for adult onset out adult onset, uh, hunters and anglers, like that's the tough part is where do you start? Like, it's not, it's not an easy pastime. It is not a cheap pastime. It's, there's a lot going on. Um, so, so getting people comfortable with the idea of being in the outdoors and, and making sure um, that they're doing the right thing and doing it the right way. Um, the best thing you can do is, is find someone to be that mentor. And, and it sounds easy and it, it, it's not, and I'm, I'm not making the implication that it is. Um, but those people are out there. Um, you know, social media, uh, in a lot of ways is, you know, I, I think in a lot of ways, social media is kind of the, the atomic bomb of the modern age. It's, you know, simultaneously great and awful. Um, and in the power that it has, uh, but when used for good, you know, social media is a great mechanism to connect like-minded people. Um, so using, using social media, there are state groups for about everything. And there will be those people that don't want to give you their honey, their honey hole for finding trout or that, you know, don't want to tell you where to go hunt on public ground or whatever the case may be, but you're also going to find a lot of people that are, just as interested in making sure that they are able to share their experience with hunting, shooting, fishing, trapping, um, as doing it themselves. So start there, um, you know, find that local network of hunters and shooters, you know, go to the local, um, tackle stop, go to the local gun store, you know, express that interest. And you are, I promise you, it might not be the first person you talk to, but you are going to find someone who is so excited to share that with you, that you're, you are going to be just absolutely deluged by the amount of information and time that they are willing to spend with you to help you enjoy the outdoors. Um, like I said, it's not everybody, but but so many of those people exist. Um, and, and you're also seeing it, you know, give, give credit to like Justin Morrissey from NSSF, mm -hmm. uh, who does a great job with, with social media. August is going to be here before we know it. National shooting sports month, the, the plus one initiative that NSSF has, um, you know, seek out those resources, find those resources and, and find those, those things on a, on a local level, because they are there for you. Um, there are a lot of people working very hard in this industry every day to, to find you, to get you information and to recruit you into our ranks, because we, we want you here. We do. Um, so that's, that's the first question. Um, and, and the second, again, kind of goes back, you know, that's, that's a big part of how I was raised. Um, we, we recently, uh, we lost my grandfather, uh, at the end of April. Um, and he was, he was really kind of the one that, you know, got me hooked. He was the one that took me, you know, fishing, you know, I, I used to do chores around grandma and grandpa's house in exchange for time fishing. Right. So, um, 
it's such a huge part of, of me and how I grew up and, you know, spending time with him fishing for bluegill or you know, he had beagles for a number of years and, and, you know, hunting rabbits with him. That's, it's such a big part of how I grew up that having that opportunity, you know, my sons are two and four, so they're a little bit of ways away yet. Um, but both of them are, are showing interest and you know, I've, I've got a boat and they like to get in the boat and they like to go out and go fishing and yeah, they don't have the attention span for it yet. Um, but, but the interest is there and, and you can see that spark in their eye when, when we drive by somewhere that, you know, that, oh, there's deer in that field or, Hey, that's the deer hunting store. And, and the interest is there. Um, it's, it's important, but it's, it's also important for, for those of us that are trying to pass that on to our kids to make sure that we're doing it, um, responsibly and respectfully, you know, my, my four-year-old for his birthday last year, got a, got a Nerf gun and, you know, maybe, maybe it's a little to the extreme, but you know, his, his Nerf gun lives on the gun safe. He doesn't have free range with that gun. When we get the gun down, we go over the, the four rules of gun safety before he plays with his Nerf gun. It's way easier to get him, get that ingrained with him with a Nerf gun and then be able to explain to him, okay, this is a Nerf when he's old enough to understand this is a Nerf gun and this is a real gun. But if he knows those rules and applies them to a Nerf gun, it's way easier to unteach them for the Nerf gun than for him to pick up a real gun and think that it's a Nerf gun. So, so going about these things the right way and making sure that, um, you know, they, they understand a, why we hunt, why we fish, how it fits into the conservation model, but then also, you know, how do we go about doing this safely? How do we go about doing this in a way that's respectful to other people and to the animals? Um, you know, that's, that's our, our greatest charge as, um, you know, the mentors for the next generation that's doing that is making sure that they're going about it the right way. And it's, it's not easy, but it is something that, um, needs to be part of the thought process as we engage in those activities. Beautifully said. Thank you, Trent. Where can everyone follow you and follow spy point too, and learn more about the products? Uh, all, all social medias, you can find spy point, um, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram, you can, you can search spy point or spy point camera and, and you're going to find them there. Uh, you can find me in most of those places as well. Um, I've, I've got my own, uh, catch all blog as well. You can uh, Google tag soup adventures and, and that's a repository for, for things that aren't landing anywhere else. And, uh, if you, if you search for me on Twitter and Instagram or anywhere else, uh, you'll find me there as well. And sorry, uh, sorry if you're that hard up for content these days, but I am there and you can find me. Awesome. Thank you, Trent. This has been so much fun. I appreciate you lending your perspective, talking about trail cams, and I hope it leads to people checking out spy point connecting with you. And I hope at some point we'll be able to connect again for a longer duration. I'm not too far away from you. So maybe we can meet up some way halfway between and maybe do some fishing. Your boys are for also sure. almost ready. I think your older one is pretty close to being able to do fishing. So, so oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, very soon. Yep. He, uh, he gets out there and chucks a line on the boat every once in a while. It's, uh, it's fun. And it, it is always a pleasure to chat with you and catch up and never enough time, but it is always a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure you're following us on your preferred podcast player. We like to recommend Apple podcasts because Apple is where most of our listenership hails from. So if you head over to Apple, 
subscribe, comb through some episodes, and leave us reviews. We'd be more than appreciative of your support in that manner. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat nor a guest announcement. And you can connect with me personally on my social media feeds. All of the Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram links that I have are all denoted by blue check marks. Really easy to find me. So engage with me there. I'd love to hear your thoughts. If you want to recommend yourself for the show as a prospective guest, I'm all ears to hear and sift through different inquiries. Stay tuned for the next episode. Appreciate you listening.